Well, too much already and not enough scum is the title of this message. And hopefully that will make sense by the time we get to the end. Too much already. You know, pride bears uh, bad fruit in the life of anyone who's diseased by it. It bears bad fruit in our lives. It was bearing bad fruit in the lives of the Corinthians. And uh, the Corinthians needed a reminder to look forward. Somehow their pride was playing a role in kind of viewing life all right here, right now. They needed a reminder to look forward and have an eternal perspective. So that's where we're going to head today. And we're going to go straight from 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're just moving along. Let me bring us up to speed uh, with regards to what's happening in the book overall. The Corinthians, of course, are a very gifted group of people. It's a very gifted church. Specifically, it's a very spiritually gifted church. We read in chapter 1, verses 5 to 7, I give thanks, verse 5, that in every way you were enriched in him with all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, then check this out, verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. So they're very gifted. They're very spiritually gifted. And yet, oddly enough, Paul does not consider them a spiritual bunch of people. Chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. They're not properly discerning the things of the Spirit. They're viewing life through the lens of the flesh, supremely evidenced by the fact that they are choosing their favorite leaders and keeping the Apostle Paul and his so-called foolish gospel at at an arm's length. So Paul has been trying to help them rethink the gospel, rethink church leadership, rethink spirituality. Their categories are all amok. What we're going to see today is that behind it all, you won't be surprised, is an issue of pride. An issue of pride in the church. So let's read in verses 6 and 7. And uh, I'm just going to kind of walk through and... uh, pause at a couple points here. Paul says, verse 6, I have applied all these things, now that's a reference to all these images that Paul's been giving to us. The, the uh, church as a garden, the church as a building, uh, Paul and Apollos as servants of the church, but not being mastered by the church. Jesus is the master. All of these things, Paul says, I've applied to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. That's, a, that's an important phrase right there. Not to go beyond what is written. Now, Paul has made a few references to Old Testament texts. That's probably specifically what he has in mind. In chapter 1, verse 19, he quotes Isaiah 29. He quotes Isaiah 64 in chapter 2. He quotes Isaiah 40 in chapter 2, verse 16. Paul says, don't go beyond what is written. That's one of the problems in this church is is there's all kinds of things taking place and, and, and they are going beyond what 
has been written in the scriptures. If I come up here or, or meet you, you know, in the fellowship hall or we meet during the week and I start sharing with you all the amazing things that God is doing in my life and speaking to me and these experiences that I'm having and there's just this, that, you know, I'm just having all this revelation of, of what God wants and who God is and, and how the way the world works and, and I'm just sticking the name of God on all that stuff and you don't sense that I am thinking Bible or speaking Bible. It's just all existential experience. You can take what I say and just hold it pretty loosely. And you should. You should. Because you don't want to hold fast to something that goes beyond what is written. You don't want to hold fast to that, to that kind of thing. I, I, I've spent, you know... I've got in my earlier days in my walk with the Lord, I would go through my life just wanting to commune with God. So I'd go for a week of just, just, just everywhere, just looking for interpreting circumstances, interpreting impressions, just interpreting. How's God speaking to me? How's God speak to me? Speak to me? Speak to me? And for a week, I wouldn't open my Bible. I know God is moved. I know God is not, I know God is speaking through the Word of God. And if I'm bringing to you a biblical perspective, if I'm bringing to you a biblical paradigm, if I'm bringing to you the evidence that I am soaking in the, God, in the Word of God, and, and God is speaking to me through His Word, and I'm sharing those things with you, and I'm sharing the Word of God with you, and I'm thinking Bible, and I'm speaking Bible, you can hold fast to what is being said, because you can hold fast to the Word of God. Anything that is going beyond the Scripture, just hold it loosely. Just hold it loosely. I, I had a friend who one time went to a conference and he came back and he said, yeah, there's, there's this really uh, amazing time where some people were praying over me and they spoke a prophetic word into my life and they gave me a new sp uh, spiritual name. They said that I am a dragon slayer. Oh, man. Just hold that loosely. Hold it loosely. Be, be, one, does the, does the script, do, do you see it? You need to go to the Bible when you hear something like that. Does the scripture ever talk about giving God giving a Christian a new secret spiritual name that they are supposed to embrace as an identity? I'm not going to comment on it beyond, do you know that the Bible does that? I haven't studied it for myself. I have my hunch. Two, if it does, does it is there any is there any place that you would go to support the notion that God wants you to think of yourself as a dragon slayer? Just hold it. This is a big deal for this guy. He's about to go Luke Skywalker in his whole identity. His whole, the whole way that he is, he's thinking about the most intimate part of his person, perhaps, his, his spiritual identity. I am Dragon Slayer. Just hold that loosely and go to the Bible. What does the Word of God say? And if the Word of God affirms something, then you can take it to the bank. But don't go beyond what is written.
Don't go beyond what is written. I love the way that Wayne Grudem talks about this. He's one of my favorites because he can speak to it and also affirm the reality of prophecy, prophetic word. Here's what Grudem says about the word of God. The Bible contains all the words of God we need for trusting and obeying him perfectly. There's no need to go beyond the scripture. You should test things by the scripture. And we as human beings have a tendency to move beyond the scripture because it is a discipline to put yourself under the scripture. The scripture calls you to conform to what the scripture says. It calls you to bring your life into alignment. It is a spiritual discipline to build boundaries around the way that you think, the way you pray, the way that you talk, so that you don't go beyond what is written. I don't know why it is, but people tend to not want to conform, and we live a lot of our lives engaging spiritual ideas outside of the realm of what the Scripture clearly lays out for us. I don't know why we do that as Christians, except for it's discipline to not do that. It's, a, it's discipline to think Bible. It's discipline to pray biblical prayers. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. It's discipline to pray biblical prayers. It's discipline to test our impressions against the Bible. I had an impression one time, a very strong impression, true story, um, that, I won't go into all the details, but we were with a young woman, uh, 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 she's probably 15 years old, and I felt very strongly that God wanted her to be a part of this particular prayer time that we were about to have. And... Um, I encouraged her, I told her that I think God does not want you to, her, her mom didn't want her to be a part of it, for whatever reason. I think God wants you to do this. Okay, that is not the Lord. I don't care how strong the impression is, because Ephesians 6.1 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. I am, I am explicitly telling her to disobey her parents because of some strong impression of what I think the Lord is probably putting on my heart for her. Always run it through the Scriptures. Don't go beyond the Scriptures. If our life is marked by notions that go beyond what is written, you don't have to take us seriously. That's the, that's the, that's the, the, Christ, the Christian is a person of the book. If we live our lives outside the book, beyond the book, you don't have to take us seriously because this is all we have to say. This is all we have to say. It may sound spiritual if it's beyond it, but it's not truly spiritual. Paul says, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Here's a second reason why I've applied these things to us, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of of one against another. Puffed up in favor of one against another. Now let's look at the main issue here. The main issue in both of these verses is pride. In verse 6, Paul talks about them being puffed up. Oh, I forgot to read verse 7. Let's look at verse 7 real quick. Verse 7. Who sees anything different in you? The ESV kind of words it strangely. I like the NIV's translation a little better. What makes you different from anyone else? Gordon Fee says, what makes you so special? What, did you ha- what do you have that you did not receive 
If then you received it, why do you boast? So there's the other flag of pride there. As if you did not receive it. Puffed up, boasting. Pride is the issue in both of these in both of these verses. Now notice how Paul exposes the situation in a series of three questions in verse 7. The first question is this. What makes you so special? Who sees anything different in you? Implied answer. What makes you so special? Our giftedness. That's what makes us so special. Okay, Paul says, next question. What do you have that you did not receive? You've got these amazing gifts. What makes you so special? These gifts. Okay, what do you have that you don't receive? Implied answer, nothing. We received everything from God. Okay, I have a third question for you then. If you received it, then why are you boasting as though you did not receive it? Why are you, and and the the answer to that is, we're stumped. (laughs) If you received it, then why are you boasting? Interesting that right on the, so last week's passage was about not judging, right? And we said that that the kind of judging that Paul is talking about is the judging of the motives of the heart when you just don't know for sure what's going on. You don't know for sure. You can't pinpoint anything. And then, in the next passage, Paul makes a judgment. Why? Why can he do... How can he say, don't judge, and then the next passage, make a judgment? It's because he's got something that he can pinpoint. They're boasting. He can lay his finger on it. You will know a tree by its fruit. There's the fruit right there. You're boasting. There's a great danger in becoming prideful about the things that God has given to us. What's really tricky about this is that we want to acknowledge the reality of the gifts that God gives. There's nothing wrong with acknowledging the gifts that God has genuinely given to you. Let's stay on the topic of spiritual gifts. So let's... uh, yeah, I, I, think, I think at some point you should be able to say something like, and it's even good to be able to say something like, I think, by God's grace and for the good of the church body, that's what spiritual gifts are for, 1 Corinthians 12, we'll look at that. I think by God's grace, I have been given stronger than average administrative skills. 1 Corinthians 12, 28, administrative gift, spiritual gift. Or... I have a stronger than average, I think, by the grace of God, heart for the poor and for the broken. Gift of mercy. Romans 12.8. Or, when I pray for people and ask God to heal them, they seem to get better. I think maybe I have a gift of healing. Okay, You should know that. You should know that about yourself. Um, but we have to always be mindful that these things have been given to us as gracious gifts. It's very easy to forget that it's a gift because they come very naturally for you. Very easy, right? You, 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 you struggle sometimes, I struggle sometimes, with things that come very naturally for me, but I see other people really struggling with things. Same things that are easy for me. So a person who's very gifted administratively, like they're they, like they're orderly, they're on time, they're you know they 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 tend to have things ordered. They see people like me. I have to fight, work like a dog to be organized because it's just not nat- I'm not gifted administratively, 
And it's, it's very, you know, I, I, people who are gifted administratively would look at my life and be like, how can you live with the disorder? I'm like, how do you keep it so ordered? It's a gift. Or you see, some, some, some people, their heart just breaks. Like they're watching Hulu and, they, they, and the, the humanitarian commercials that come on in between, you know, every 15 minutes or whatever, they see these commercials about stuff that's going on in the world. They're just, you know, they're trying to watch whatever, Grey's Anatomy, and they uh, hit these commercial breaks. They're just crying every commercial break. Their heart's just breaking. And they, and they maybe don't understand why it's so hard for other people to not feel for the broken. It's because it's you have a gift. And they don't. They have to work at it. They have to fight for it. It comes very easy to you. And it's a gift given to you for the good of the body, to help us. Well, we can become prideful about that. Elevate ourselves above those people that don't have the same gifts. Start thinking of them and treating them in ways that indicate that we have forgotten, that we are all recipients of grace. Your gift was just given to you. When we start to boast, we lift ourselves up, we push other people down. That's the kind of thing that's led to the Corinthian favoritism. A puffed up mentality, pride and giftedness, going beyond the word of God. And not only has it led to favoritism, but it's also, it's also led to a significant theological error in the church. That's what Paul's going to address here in verses 6 to, uh, I'm sorry, verses 8 to 13 a significant theological error that's stemming from this pride. Now, pride can lead to all kinds of theological errors, I'm sure. But here's what's happening in Corinth. There's, a, there's a, an issue that has arisen. It's, real, it, it, it's really two issues, or maybe it's best thought of as two sides of the same coin. Two sides of the same theological coin. On the one side is the Corinthians' belief that they have already arrived. It's what, it's what theologians would refer to as an, an over-realized eschatology. Eschatology is study of end times. An over-expectation of what should be taking place right now. They're, they, they, they are over-expecting. They're, over, they're over-expecting that they have reached a point of spiritual maturity. That they're already experiencing the bounty of the fullness of God's blessings, that they are already taking on the throne and reigning with Christ. And Paul's rebuke to them is very sharp. Very sharp. I, don't, I can't think, uh, I can think of one place in Galatians where Paul gets real sarcastic in his rebuke, like he does here. He gets real sarcastic. This is not the way he normally addresses people. It probably has something to do with the high level of arrogance with which the Corinthians are puffed up at this point. So he, he hits them with thick irony here. Verses 8 and verses 10. Verse 8, already, he says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And then jump down to verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We, I'm sorry, you are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Thick irony. 
already. You're experiencing all these blessings and, and, and us poor apostles who, who just don't know what the, full, what the full Christ life could be. They see in themselves the manifestation of God's blessing. They've drawn unhealthy conclusions about the reality of their present state. They're reading too much into it. They're reading too much into their giftedness. And they think that they are already living in the fullness of God's kingdom. And this is why Paul has to, by the way, confront their unbelief in the resurrection in chapter 15. You're expecting some of the things that come after you come back from the dead. So he has to confront, the the church has a problem with expecting too much right now. They expect things that are going to happen at the resurrection. They consider themselves to be already spiritually full. Verse 8, already you have all you want. One one dictionary translates this, the, the word for full here. You think you already have all the spiritual food you need. That's, that's kind of their, that's where they're at. I think they have it all. They consider themselves to be living in the full, consummated richness of the kingdom blessings. Already you have become rich. They consider themselves to already entered into the final kingdom reign of Christ. Without us, you have become kings. Now, Paul wants to attack that mentality. That's the reason for the sarcastic tone, obviously. But he makes his true position perfectly clear at the end of verse 8. Without us, you have become kings. And then he gets serious. And would that you did reign. Or, I wish you did reign. I wish that were true so that we might share the rule with you. I wish you had already entered into the final kingdom consummated reign of Christ because then we'd all be enjoying the consummated blessings together with you. I wish it were true. That would be the end of all this suffering, Paul says. No more slander, no more hardships, no more dishonor, no more beatings, no more hunger, no more rags for clothes. I wish it were true, but it's not true. And if our understanding of the kingdom of God in the present age leads us to believe that the elimination of suffering or trial or hardship is already guaranteed for Christians right now, then we have an over-expectation of what God promises to us. Now that's what the Corinthians have believed, and that's the first side of the coin. It's the first side of the theological error that's taking place. The other side of the coin of this theological problem is directly related. It's the belief that Paul and the other apostles are weak, unimpressive, disrespectable, and are failing to experience the blessing of God and thus failing to live out true Christianity. You see the connection between those two things? If you expect too much, then you view other people who are suffering and you say they must not be the real deal. It's the same problem, just looked at from two different angles. Paul's response to this is not to deny the suffering. The Corinthians are casting doubt on Paul's apostolic message and validity because he suffers. They look at his life, they see him suffering, and they say he can't be the real deal. Paul doesn't deny the suffering. Instead, he uses the suffering as an explanation for the normative Christian experience. This is the norm, guys. It is. It's the norm. 
In verse 8, Paul has just said that he wishes that he had already entered into Christ's reign. In verse 9, he explains why. I wish, I wish it were true because... Now, here's my normal life. Here's my normal life. 1 Corinthians 4, 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. What's Paul talking about here? In all likelihood, Paul is here making reference to something referred to as the Roman triumph. The military celebration It's called the triumph or the triumphal procession. This is what would happen. The tallest and most handsome men from a defeated army would be paraded, marched through a city as a display of the power of the leader who had conquered them. They called it a triumph. To celebrate the triumph of a leader, they would display the strength, the great strength of the defeated army. They'd put it on display, say, look at what we conquered. Look at what we conquered. And then they'd kill him at the end. That's a triumph. And Paul says about himself, I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Paul says, that's Christian living for an apostle. King Jesus has conquered me. It's not pretty. We are being marched to public execution, so to speak. It's actually quite literal for them. Tradition says 11 of the 12, or I'm sorry, 10 of the 11, I guess if you include Paul, all of them but John died a martyr's death. We are a cosmic spectacle. Verse 11, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. Don't even have a home. The end of verse 13, we have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Now these two words, scum and refuse, they're almost identical words. One uh, refers to that foamy gunch that's left from the scouring off of the dirt from your body. Kind of recedes to the edges of the of the water, that scum that's left over. One is the what's left over when you sweep the floor. Clean the floor off, you've got a pile of refuse. And that's what we are still. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are still like the scum of the world. If we think that God promises otherwise, then our theology has missed the New Testament's recurring theme of the suffering of God's people. There is a great danger when we make that theological mistake. We interpret all suffering, our own suffering, or the suffering of others we're trying to minister to, as the sure result of our failure to trust in God. Your suffering is because you are not trusting the Lord. That's how the logic would go. 
If we had been trusting in Him, living in the fullness of His richness and blessing and kingdom reign, we wouldn't undergo these kinds of trials. Now, there is a kind of trial that you undergo because you have made bad decisions, for sure, right? If you have lung cancer because you smoked all your life, your suffering has been brought upon yourself through some sort of bad decision. If you're in jail because of tax evasion, you know, there is a suffering that comes because of you brought it on yourself. But I knew a couple who was once told by their church, true story, that the reason they lost their child was because of their lack of faith. The presumptuousness that drives that kind of assessment is probably demonic in nature. And at the very least, it presupposes that such things should never happen to Christians. And Paul says, and Jesus says to us today, do not buy that. Do not buy that worldview. Do not buy that world or that view of Christianity. Suffering was the way of the Savior. And it is normative for his followers until he returns. When Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, it was not an invitation to a birthday party. There's only one reason you take up a cross, my pastor Bob Brown used to say. There's only one reason you take up a cross, and it's to die. Paul's point is to say that suffering is not a strange thing for a Christian to experience. In fact, suffering is normative. John 16.33, Jesus says, In the world, you will have tribulation. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange. This is normative. Paul tells the Philippians, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ... You should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. It has been granted to you. It is, for now, the will of God that His people endure suffering. So whether it is the illnesses of Epaphrodites, Philippians 2.27, or Timothy's illness in 1 Timothy 5.23, or Paul's shipwreck in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 11.25, or whether it's hunger or clothing from our passage today in verse 11, it's no sure sign that a person is failing to live out the fullness of the Christian life in the present age. Now, Paul's point here is obviously not to tell the, Christi- the Corinthians to stop relieving suffering. That's not the, the point is not stop trying to relieve suffering. Pray for healing. Absolutely pray for healing. You see somebody who's in in a financial situation and you have resources and and they need help and you can help, help them. Relieve suffering. Relieve physical suffering. Relieve suffering for sure. But the point is to help the Corinthians to understand that they should recognize that the suffering of God's people is in step with God's primary modus operandi prior to his return. And the Corinthians' triumphalistic view of the kingdom is wrought with over-expectations and an inability to appreciate and to embrace the glory of a life 
that is lived in the footsteps of Jesus. Which begs the question, what is the glory of a life lived in the footsteps of Jesus? I mean, why did the apostles have to have it this way? Why doesn't God just rescue us, put us into a state of like restoration, completion, full health, full victory? Wouldn't that give him glory? And the answer is it certainly would give him glory. And that's exactly what's going to happen when he returns. That's how he's going to get his glory when he returns. He will come back as a conquering king and every enemy will be put under his feet, including death. And he could have done it that way when he came the first time, if he wanted to. That's what everybody expected him to do, but the great surprise in redemptive history was that the king of the Jews first sat upon a throne to which he was nailed before he sat upon a throne where he will be hailed as king of kings and lord of lords by every tongue in heaven and on earth and under the earth. There's a certain revelation of God's glory that uniquely shines through weakness and suffering. It's, it's, a, it's a glory that emanates from a king who is born in a barn, praised only by a few mangy shepherds on the night of his birth. It's the glory that proceeds through the hidden parables about fishing and farming and weddings from the mouth of a Nazarene carpenter. It's the excellencies of a teacher who was rejected by the supreme spiritual leaders of his day was betrayed by one of his closest friends and whose crowning achievement was being murdered at the hands of those he came to save. There is a hidden glory in that. Because on the night of his birth, there was an explosive celebration among the heavenly host as they cried out, Glory to God in the highest. And those parables were actually lessons about heavenly treasure and the souls of men and fathers who received delinquent sons. And the betrayal and the murder was actually a ransom paid by the Son of God to rescue us from the guilt and the wrath that should be falling on us right now for the things that we did this week or failed to do this this very week. And He was a ransom. There is a hidden glory in the life of the suffering servant, Jesus the Messiah, is there not? Believe it or not, he set an example for the kind of life that he calls us to embrace. It's the glory of a person who lives in this world, but isn't afraid to lose this world so that others might be saved. There is a glory in that. The call to discipleship is a call to, as some have said, a cruciformed life cruciformed life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. And that's what Paul embraced as the norm and through him a unique glory shone. You can see it. The second half of verse 12. He says, when reviled, We bless. It's a glorious thing. People revile us, we bless them in return. 
When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat or answer kindly. There is a glory in that. You see, right now, the norm is not the eradication of suffering. The norm is God's provision of strength to suffer well. If you hear one thing this morning, besides the reminder that Christ has paid the ransom for you, I want you to hear that the norm is that God provides strength to suffer well. This is simply the paradigm that the New Testament provides for us. God does not promise to take it away, not yet, but He does promise that the mortal will one day be swallowed up and replaced with immortal life. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee. Paul calls him, call, Paul calls him the down payment, 2 Corinthians 5.5. 5. Paul says he's the down payment of our eternal heavenly dwelling. Until then, the life of Jesus is shining through us, shining through us to others as we die and they receive life. We die, they receive life. The life of Jesus shining through us as we endure hardship with unusual strength and an unexplainable joy, an unusual love for others because Jesus is our treasure. Do what you will to me. I am stabilized. Take my life, take my health. The Lord is my rock and my refuge. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh, so death is at work in us, but life in you. Last night, one day after his 95th birthday, Dr. Roger Nicole, a renowned and highly respected reformed evangelical theologian, shed his mortal earthly tent and went to be with the Lord. He was a founding member of the Evangelical Theological Society. He was a founding member of the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy. He taught for 41 years at Gordon-Conwell. He published extensively, but he surprisingly he never wrote a book. Though several books have been written about him and in his honor, he tirelessly wrote and spoke and defended the biblical doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. He set the contemporary standard, many would say, for approaching polemical issues with grace and love for those who may be in error. And Don Sweeting, president of Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, had the chance to talk with him a few weeks ago before he passed. As I said, just passed last night, and um, he wrote he wrote some thoughts on this man after this conversation. This is what he said, and I'll close with this. Doctor Nicole spoke of his own retrenchment, not with deep complaint, but with a proper sense of realism and lament that comes from any loss 
lost everything. Lost his wife, lost his career, lost his students. There's a proper sense of realism and lament that comes. There was melancholy in his voice as he reminisced about days gone by and noted what he had or what he no longer had. But then he paused in in the conversation and with all the vigor of his French-accented English emphatically exclaimed, but I have joy. And this, he said, could not be taken away. Not only that, but Dr. Dr. Nicole clearly understood that his present retrenchment is a season as well. We ended our visit by opening up the scriptures and reading together from Psalm 16. That great psalm begins, Keep my safe, O Lord, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. You have assigned me my portion and my cup. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. It was with particular eagerness that Dr. Nicole recited from memory, from memory as I read the last part of the psalm, My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Seeing beyond our seasons of accumulation and retrenchment, Dr. Nicole clearly had his eye on yet another season, which for him seemed just around the corner. Let's pray. Lord, we pray now that these words would sink into our hearts. Holy Spirit, help us to set our eyes heavenward so that our hope would be in You, not in the fleeting pleasures of sin, not in over-expectations of things that You have not promised. And as we set our eyes on heaven, as we set our eyes on Christ, and all the promises that You have for us, would You give us now the strength to endure the reality of the suffering in our lives so that we can suffer well so that as death is worked in us life might be worked in others do it for your great name's sake lord we pray in christ's name